Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tiski Sour. Unusually for a Friday, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar, which is fortunate as you were the star of Question Time last night. We're going to talk about that this evening. Have you recovered? Well, I mean, I think with a whole evening where you're surrounded by professional politicians, there will be some lingering trauma. But I think with judicious application of rum this evening, I'll be able to shake it off. You dealt with it very well, even if you couldn't hide the the disgust on your face sitting next to that anonymous Tory minister. We're also going to be talking about Andrew Tate this evening. We haven't talked about him that much, even though he's been in the news a fair amount. Very significant figure for all the wrong reasons has been exposed by a vice investigation. That's all coming up. New data from the NHS has confirmed the depths of the current crisis in the service. In December, the average response time for Category 1 calls, that's defined as life-threatening emergencies, was 10 minutes and 57 seconds. That's the longest since 2017, and the target is seven minutes. So that's much longer than we would hope for the most serious incidents. Meanwhile, a staggering 54,000 people waited over 12 hours in emergency department. That's the highest on record. However, there is some rare good news. The number of people waiting for non-emergency care has fallen, but only slightly. At the end of November, there were 7.21 million people waiting for routine hospital care. The figure is now 7.19 million. It's a situation which means healthcare staff, as well as the public at large, are fuming. With a record 50,000 patients a week experiencing over 12-hour A&E waits, when will the Prime Minister finally admit the NHS is in crisis? So, Navreen, you're asking this question. What is your experience of the NHS? Why are you asking it? Well, I'm a junior doctor, so I'm working Mm. in the NHS. I've worked on the front line. um, And you just see the problems. Patients can't move from A&E into beds on the wards. Patients are just there. But especially elderly patients who need social care, they just can't be discharged. They're there for days and if not weeks. And you've just got really sick patients in ambulances that just can't move through the system. And just like recently, my own nan spent 48 hours in a trolley in ED before she could move to a ward. So I experienced it through work and through my own family. And it's just in crisis. And I just think there's been like a decade of underfunding and a workforce crisis that has not been addressed. And this is why... You know, I think the NHS is pretty much at breaking point. So, Alex Navreen is a junior doctor, is using the word crisis. The Prime Minister, conspicuously, is not using the word crisis. Yeah. Is he wrong to do so? Well, I think that the Prime Minister is absolutely clear, and he's said this, that the NHS is under extreme pressure, and he's not uh, balked about that at all. But why and, would and he... The, why, the word but, crisis yeah. is... He's, 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 many people have asked him to try and get him set, and he's not sure. saying... Is that because he doesn't think it is? No, look, I think he recognises this is immensely serious. And certainly, when he did his um, speech recently at the beginning of the year, he named getting down the, uh, the waiting list as one of his absolute priorities. And, of course, last weekend, as you know, he was there uh, meeting with the NHS. I, it, the pressures are absolutely extraordinary. I think we, or we know that. But what he's been absolutely clear about as one of his targets, he wants to get the waiting list down. To, they were at two years, not least because of the backlog from COVID, get them under two years to 18 months maximum by this spring and then by next spring down to 12 months and what he said and I think this is really refreshing is he said look here I stand this is the target this is what I want to be judged on and if I don't you please do judge me and I think that's absolutely the right approach that was defense minister Alex Chalk on last night's BBC question time he was asking people to withhold their judgment on the Tories handling of the NHS even though they've been in power for 12 years as you saw there the audience did not look in any way impressed and it didn't get any better for the Tory MP. I'm also a junior doctor, um, and I live and work in Anna's old constituency. Um, And we've... I work on a dementia specialist ward, um, and I've had patients who are medically fit, who do not need to be in an acute hospital bed waiting for placements for months now, because there's 165,000 vacancies in social care, and you haven't addressed it. Last year, 7,000 doctors approached our regulator looking for permission and their paperwork to go and work abroad. You only train 8,000 medical students a year. Retention is in crisis in the NHS. You must address it. You must address it. And my trust declared a critical incident 
and it's stepped down the critical incident, not because things are getting better, but because it doesn't make any difference us declaring a critical incident because you refuse to accept that this is a crisis and people are dying because you are not addressing the problems. After that intervention, an emergency nurse chimed in. So I'm an emergency nurse practitioner. I've only been qualified actually for four years. Oh my goodness, I, it feels like our audience is, is full of people. With it. I know it isn't, but I seem to unerringly seem to have found you. Yeah. Uh, I've only actually been qualified for four years. I've been on the front line um, prior to the pandemic, during the pandemic, post-pandemic. Mm. I'm going to put this bluntly. It's like a war zone. There's beds everywhere. There's patients everywhere. There's elderly people. <laughs> People are sitting on chairs for, for 24 hours. It's not okay no more. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed now. Like in 2019, there was a manifesto pledge that there was going to build 40 new hospitals. That hasn't even been done remotely, even looked into. Where are they finding the staff to even staff those? Because they can't retain the staff they've got because they don't know how to look after them. All we get told is we're not skilled enough. We need to justify a pay rise. And I think we've justified <coughs> it enough. We're tired and we've had enough. Yes. Okay. I'm going to come around the rest of the panel. I just want to give you one last chance, Alex. Do you want to admit the NHS is in crisis? Well, look, if the Prime Minister doesn't, do you, hearing this, do you want to? There is no doubt that the pressures are hit no, no. by historic And you said levels. that. Do you no, want the, to the say reason, it's The reason why I say, I say that is because, you know, talk is cheap, action is what matters. And no, no, what the I'm, Prime I'm not asking said, what you're actually... No, you, you've made sure, clear sure. already about yeah. Yeah. the money. Yes, or not? yes well, that's look, what I'm asking it's you. It's incredibly intense and the pressures okay, are... OK, so you don't want to use that word. I think we've got that. Ash, I want your take on this. We're going to go to your interventions from the panel later in the show. For now, I suppose I wanted your perspective on what it was like being in the room because... The audience were fuming and there was a point in the show where Fiona Bruce was trying to make, take it onto a different topic and all anyone wanted to talk about in the audience seemed to be the NHS and how fuming they all were. We, we showed um, you know, our audience there, people speaking who worked for the NHS. There were loads of people who didn't work for the NHS who spoke and were sort of equally angry. I mean, what was the, what did it feel like in there? I mean, it was a really extraordinary mood in the room. And so the first time I ever did Question Time was in... 2018, I think, might have been 2017. And there has been a level of political consciousness when it comes to the issue of public sector pay and also the deterioration of public services, which even though the Corbyn project is no longer in the ascendant, even though the Labour Party has swung to the right, there's a level of consciousness and anger about that at the moment, which is unlike anything that I've seen in my time in doing political media. And I think that what that is a reflection of is just how bad it's gotten. And the NHS is something which everybody has to interact with in some way. Even if you go with a private healthcare provider, they only do non-emergency care. So you might be, you know, richy rich, little Lord Fauntleroy, but if you have a stroke or if you have a heart attack, or if your loved one has a stroke or a heart attack and has to go to A&E, you're waiting for the same ambulances. You're waiting in the same accident and emergency waiting rooms. And so that's something which I think is impossible to ignore. And while Fiona Bruce was quite surprised by the number of NHS employees who are in the room, and it did seem that like there are a lot of them, the thing that people always forget is that the NHS is the single largest employer in this country. And when you think about the proportion of the public sector workforce, that's something which goes up when you get outside of London. So once you go to Birmingham or Manchester or you know Sheffield or Newcastle, you do have a larger proportion of people employed by the public sector and the NHS is going to make up a, a larger part of that. It was, I think, really interesting to me that every single person pinned the blame squarely on the government for the issues in the NHS. Nobody was talking about unions in a way which was demonising or blaming them for disruption on strike days. Absolutely every single person was talking about the government. And rightly so, because the Conservatives love to try and pull this trick where they go, oh, you know, we're just a baby government. We've only been in a few months. But it's harder to sell that line now. We're coming up to 13 years of consecutive Conservative governments. We're coming up to, you know, nearly a decade on since the Andrew Lansley reforms. And what everyone can see is that the quality of the service that they're having to interact with has deteriorated 
to an absolutely critical state. So in December, the number of people waiting in accident emergency for over four hours, there were over 700,000 incidents of four hour plus waits. The average ambulance call out time for category two, so that includes suspected strokes and suspected heart attacks, is over 90 minutes. Now, that is absolutely terrifying. It's traumatizing for patients and also their loved ones. And I think that people feel afraid of needing help. You know, people are terrified that they're going to get sick or injured because it's starting to resemble the United States where you're genuinely worried you're not going to be able to get the care that you need. And in a country like ours, where you ostensibly have a form of universal provision, it's unacceptable. And whether you're a Labour voter or a Conservative voter, whether you're young or old, whether you work in the NHS or not, people can see that that is an abject failure of government. And what was interesting on the panel, I mean, you say so everyone in the room was attacking the Tories and you know all the audience were, but it seemed like almost everyone on the panel was, apart from the Conservative minister who didn't put up much of a defence. Because you also had Anna Subri. I found that quite frustrating. She was sort of attacking the current Tory minister for the state of the NHS, even though she was a minister. She was in government with David Cameron and George Osborne when the problem really started and austerity began to be implemented. You also had Tim Stanley, who himself seemed to admit that the problem was because not enough was being invested in the NHS. Now, lots of people say, you know, the conservative plan, people get this from Chomsky, is is to degrade the service until it doesn't work anymore and then privatise it. It didn't seem to me like if that was the strategy, it's working. There wasn't suddenly loads of people saying, because the NHS isn't working well, we've got to privatise it or radically change how it works. Well, I think that's the you know, the failure of conservative strategy in lots of ways, because, you know, we're 13 years into successive conservative governments, and you had a really huge package of reforms. Now, what those reforms did was they effectively balkanized the NHS, they created perverse incentives where patients and particularly elderly patients and people with long term disabilities are being kicked between hospitals and GPs and local council enablement services and all the rest of it. The case for a sweeping reform of the NHS isn't there. And I also think that the Conservatives have have chosen their fights poorly. So in refusing to offer a serious pay package to nurses and ambulance workers at the same time as they're refusing to offer a serious pay package to teachers and to railway workers and to university staff. What they've done is they've created a sense of overall mismanagement of the public sector. And when you've got an exodus of staff from the public sector, you're seeing exoduses of staff in teaching, for instance, and universities, as well as the NHS, which I know is something that you guys have been talking about on the show recently. That's giving an impression of, of the Conservatives just having totally bodged the job. You compare it to somebody like Margaret Thatcher, who, of course, you know, did wage war on the public sector. She also waged war on the unions. But the first thing she did when she got into office, before she started attacking the unions in earnest, is that she strategically gave pay rises in aspects of the public sector, including most notably the police. And that enabled her to turn workers against each other. This crop of Tories, I mean, you know, I'm I'm not talking about Margaret Thatcher as an admirable figure ideologically. I think what she did was absolutely awful for this country. But strategically, she had a vision and a way of executing it. This lot absolutely don't. They try and repeat some aspects of, of the Margaret Thatcher playbook, but it's like a bad cover band. And you can see them kind of drowning in the mess that they've made with the rising tide of panic in their eyes. The only idea that they've got to tackle it is trying to tough it out and and impose anti-union legislation. But I mean, it's not going to work. People are really mad. People are getting poorer. And no matter what legislation the Tories introduce, people are going to go on strike. Let's move on to our next story, quite a different one. Former kickboxer and online misogynist Andrew Tate is currently in custody in Romania while the authorities investigate rape and human trafficking allegations against him and his brother Tristan. And it's now emerged that three women in Britain reported him to the police for sexual or physical assault almost a decade ago, leading to his arrest in 2015. Now, despite the police carrying out an investigation into the allegations, the Crown Prosecution Service declined to prosecute. Now, in telling this story, we're going to go into some of the details 
of what happened. It was broken by Bias News. And some of the details are disturbing, including graphic descriptions of sexual assault. Now, if you don't know who Andrew Tate is, this clip will give you some idea. Women, let's cut to the chase here. Women should clean up. Not only should women clean up, women should clean up unprompted. And I'm going to tell you why. It's very, very simple. We live in a world where things need to be fair, 50-50, gender equality, blah, blah. I pay for things unprompted. You don't have to ask me to pay for shit. If we go for dinner, I'll get my wallet out, pay at the end. Don't even check the price of the bill. My card always works. Just bang, ouch, pay, whatever, no problem. Unprompted, if you're with me, your life is effectively free. Everywhere you eat, everywhere you go, where you sleep, you ain't paying for shit. You ain't getting in my car and I'm asking you for gas money. No, I pay for everything instantly as a man should. So when you walk into a house and you see mess, why is your lazy ass not doing the right thing and start picking and cleaning shit up? If you're sitting there going, that's sexist. Well, it's sexist for me to fucking pay for everything, isn't it, you fucking bimbo? So that kind of really toxic content has earned Tate millions of followers across various social media platforms and made him the most Googled search term in July 2022, beating both Trump and COVID-19. Now, in 2013, Amelia, a pseudonym, reportedly began a romantic relationship with Tate. She says that Tate raped her the first time she went to his flat after they'd been seeing each other for a few weeks. Now, Vice News reports this. She said the pair were kissing on Tate's bed when he began trying to take off her clothes. She had previously told him, she said, that she didn't want to have sex. He stopped, reassured her that nothing was going to happen and they continued kissing. After a while, she said, he suddenly stopped and laid back on the bed. I got up and looked at him and went, what's wrong, she said. This guy literally laid there and went, I'm just debating whether I should rape you or not. Amelia said she was stunned, unsure if it was some sort of sick joke. She said she put her hand on his chest and said, don't be stupid, what are you talking about? Within an instant, he changed who he was, she said. He wasn't the same Andrew that I knew, that was funny, that would make me laugh. It was like his eyes went and I didn't have a clue who that person was. Suddenly, she said, Tate grabbed her neck and started strangling me, forcing my trousers off me. I was trying to keep them on and he started screaming at me, take the effing trousers off, bitch. The article goes on to say, and as I say, this is graphic. Tate then raped her, Amelia said. As he did, she said he continued to choke her, saying things like, who do you belong to? Even as he was unable, even as she was unable to physically speak due to his hands constricting her throat. He's like, effing say it, bitch. You're not effing saying my name. Say my effing name, otherwise I'll kill you, she said. Now, Amelia later reported the alleged rape to the police and handed over these voice notes that Tate had sent to her. Am I a bad person? Because the, the more you didn't like it, the more I enjoyed it. I fucking loved how much you hated it. Turn me on. Why am I like that? Why? I am one of the most dangerous men on this planet. Sometimes you forget exactly how lucky you were to get fucked by me. Would you rather me pin you down and make you do things you didn't like, or would you rather fuck You didn't like that I was thinking I can do whatever I want to you. That's what it is. I'm the smartest person on this fucking planet. Are you seriously so offended I strangled you a little bit? You didn't fucking pass out. Chill the fuck out. Jesus Christ, I thought you were cool. What's wrong with you? Amelia also gave the police this message from Tate. It says... And I love raping you and watching you let me while still debating if it's a good idea or not. Now, all of that evidence, he was still not prosecuted. So he was investigated by the police, was arrested, but he wasn't prosecuted. Now, there are two other women who have spoken to Vice with allegations against Andrew Tate. They've been given the synonyms Sally and Helen. Now, both worked for Tate's webcam business and in 2015 went to the police with allegations of serious assault. Sally told Vice News that she was strangled by Tate at least five times and saw him choke other women on at least 10 occasions, attacking them in sudden outbursts of violence. The attacks allegedly occurred when the women were working for Tate's webcam sex business in Luton, England in 2015. Me and another girl would wake up in the morning with these like red, I can only describe them as freckles around our eyes, said Sally. It was from when he choked me so hard that my blood vessels had literally just burst. Meanwhile, Helen was allegedly raped by Tate in a sexual assault that Sally claims to have witnessed. 
both women went to Herefordshire Police. And Amelia's complaint was eventually added to theirs and investigated together. But the case was bogged down by delays, for which the police later apologised. Then in 2019, the CPS finally declined to prosecute and Tate moved to Romania. This is probably 40% of the reason I moved to Romania, because in Eastern Europe, none of this garbage flies. If you don't know the police and say he raped me back in 1988, so we should have done something about it then. If you don't know the police and say he raped me yesterday, say, okay, have you got physical evidence? Or is there CCTV proof? Where'd it happen? Okay, let's go interview him right now. And if it wasn't really right, oh, I'd say, oh, we went to the club, we got drunk, she agreed to go back to my house, we started having sex, and then we carried on having sex. And then we had sex and she didn't say anything wrong. And then she texted me afterwards, and I didn't text back, and now she's saying I raped her. The police would be like, okay, she's an idiot, bye. But they, no, not in the West. In the West, you can tell them that exact story, you're still fucked. You're fucked in the West. And people say, why didn't in Romania? And I explain my five reasons. One of them is the Me Too era. They go, oh, well, you're a rapist. I say, no, I'm not a fucking rapist. But I like the idea of being able to just say, to, to do what I want. I like being free. And if you're a man living in England or Germany or America or any of the Western world right now, you've decided to live in a country where any woman, any ex, any fucking bitch who works at Greg's who you bought a pasty from, at some point in the future can destroy your life. This Me Too era bullshit has not protected women. It's just destroyed the safety of men. Now, ironically, the Romanian authorities seem to be taking the allegations against Tate much more seriously than the British authorities did. Like Helen and Sally, the case in Romania also involves women that Tate convinced to work in his webcam business. Six alleged victims have been identified so far. But Tate has never been shy about boasting that he knows how to manipulate women into sex work. As part of his Hustlers University, he even teaches other men how to do it. You're effectively taking girls, teaching them how to make unlimited money from home, and then making sure they give it all to you. So it's not an easy task. You have to fuck the girls. You cannot sit and do a purely professional business relationship with a female. It doesn't work. And her believing she needs you, and this is extremely important, because at the beginning, she will need you, but then she won't need you. But you have to keep that fallacy, keep that dream alive that she can't do this without you to ensure that she doesn't do it without you. But even more importantly, it makes the girl believe that she can't do it without you. And at the beginning, she can, but there'll become a point she can. But you being here, it synergizes this teamwork energy. We're going to do this together. Yeah, you go on the camera. Don't worry. I'll talk to the guys. I'm going to talk to them. We're a team. Tax is also another important element for controlling a woman. You're not going to pay anybody tax because you're getting paid in Bitcoin. So you don't need to pay tax to anybody. But you need to tell your girl that you're paying the tax. Because girls are lazy. And girls are stupid. And girls don't understand how taxes work. So the girl's working with you and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, we've made this much money, but I'm going to pay the tax to make sure you don't get in trouble. She'll sit there and go, okay, okay. Now that allows you to do two things. One, it's another control element. If I work with him, my tax is not a problem. If I do it alone, I have to deal with taxes. Taxes are complicated. So control element. Secondly, it allows you to pay her a smaller percentage. So I used to pay my girls 30%. So for every $10,000 they made, I'd give them three and I'd keep seven. They thought they were on 50%. And I said that the disparity is because of taxes. Tate, his brother Tristan and two women were taken into custody by the Romanian police on the 29th of December last year. They're under investigation for human trafficking, organized crime and rape. Earlier this week, Tate lost his appeal against a court order allowing him to be detained for 30 days while the police carry out their investigations. The Romanian prosecutor in the case told The Guardian this. The women were forced to produce material on a daily basis over extensive hours and they had a schedule to follow. They were producing pornographic material using different objects while engaging with someone in a different location. They were also doing videos showing different parts of their body. We don't know how much the brothers earned, but the women didn't get any of the money we know a woman doing well can make 50,000 euros per month. The women who have been arrested were making sure the victims respected the program. Every girl had to have material posted. They had targets and had to follow the schedule. If not, they were sanctioned. Now, like in Amelia's case, the Romanian case also involves messages sent from Tate to his alleged victims. Some of them were published by a Romanian broadcaster. Tate allegedly sent these to one victim. 
You have to understand that once you're mine, you'll be mine forever. A woman never leaves her man. I will be the last man in your life. Can you be loving enough to be a wife, to always be by my side wherever I go? Talk to zero men besides me, ride or die. You have to move to Romania with me to keep an eye on you. Your mind, do not forget that and act like it. We will be together soon. Now, Tate denies all allegations. In fact, he seems to believe it's all a conspiracy to crush him, one conducted by the establishment or what he likes to call the Matrix. So he tweeted this earlier this year. I was made for battle, a warrior of the light. My enemies hope to attack me with lies. They tried to destroy the family unit. They tried to silence any loud opposition. I refused to leave fellow men in the dark. Someone needs to show them the light. Who better than Tate? Ash, now some of our audience might be asking, why are we talking about this incredibly vile man and the horrific crimes he is alleged to have committed? I mean, the important context here is he is one of the biggest social media influencers in the world millions of followers, billions of views. And as we're going to talk about in a moment, it seems to be quite influential among even children, young men and children. And it is, it's terrifying. It's completely terrifying. So I think we have to talk about why he's been able to do what it is that he has done. I think the first thing that you have to understand is that in this country, because of cuts to the criminal justice system, because of the way in which rape myths endure amongst police and the Crown Prosecution Service, that to a large extent, rape has effectively become decriminalized because the Crown Prosecution Service is working with far reduced resources as are the police in terms of their investigative capacities. You have huge backlogs. And what that means is, unless you present yourself as the perfect victim, so a victim who first understands what it is that's happened to them straight away. A victim who has perfectly preserved all physical evidence. A victim who hasn't had any kind of consenting romantic or sexual contact with their alleged abuser. A victim who hasn't been drinking or taking any other mind-altering substances, a victim who doesn't have a criminal record, a victim who has a settled migration status, a victim who is able to interact with police from a level of confidence that they'll be believed and not someone who will be themselves suspected. You have to be all of these things in order to have a hope of your case being taken seriously. Now, what we know is that there are all sorts of things which make people, and particularly women, more vulnerable to being targeted by abusers and people who wish to sexually exploit them for financial gain. And the things that make them more vulnerable are very often a lack of economic power. They don't have a high status within the labor market, very often don't have a huge amount in the way of further or higher education. People who often uh, come from family backgrounds where they're estranged from their parents or their siblings. These are all things which make someone incredibly vulnerable to being abused and also make it harder for them to be taken seriously by the criminal justice system. So that is a structural reason why these women were not taken seriously, why they were effectively abandoned by the Crown Prosecution Service in spite of the fact that there's compelling evidence, which means that this is a case which should clearly at the very least, get to trial. Now, of course, Andrew Tate hasn't been convicted of anything yet. And the premise of the criminal justice system, whether it's here or whether it's Romania, is innocent until proven guilty. But I think that what we can say is that there is a very clear connection between the kinds of messages which have apparently been sent in private and the way in which he's talked about women in incredibly disparaging and misogynistic ways in public. Now, when he's talking about women in public, he tends to dress it up as a kind of reciprocity, which is I get to call women bimbos and dumb hoes and stupid bitches and all the rest of it. But the quid pro quo is here I am, a very wealthy man, and I'm going to pay for everything. So there's a kind of complementarity there. Now, of course, that's all horseshit, because what we know is that he's been in using this kind of lover boy scam to pull women into his web and sexually exploit them on the internet. 
you know, anything that, that he has financially has been made on the backs of these exploited women. But that myth of reciprocity and complementarity, something which feeds a fantasy amongst young men, that they will have status in society, that they will have wealth if only they could sufficiently dominate women. There is a grotesque and horrible parallel in the kind of language which is being used in these messages, which at the very least show an entitlement to women's bodies, a lack of regard for women's consent and their agency, indeed a lack of concern for their physical well-being. And I think that that should be really troubling, that if what these women are saying is true and he has physically and sexually assaulted them repeatedly, that he has carried out this pattern of behavior with many women, both here and in Romania, This is somebody who has been hiding in plain sight. And there's something I think really troubling about our culture, that if we see someone saying horrendous things openly, if they create a public persona and a character where they're talking about women as property, where they're talking about circumstances in which violence against women is appropriate, when they're talking about gender relations which are based on the control and the domination of women, that we see that as somehow fiction and they couldn't possibly be conducting themselves badly in their personal lives. Well, look, what we saw with Jimmy Savile was an an abuser hiding in plain sight. And it appears that we haven't learned from it, that maybe someone isn't just playing a character. Maybe there is a relationship between the things they're actually doing and the things that they're saying for social media clout. We've got a number of people in the comments sort of saying, why are you giving this guy airtime? Also people saying how he got his money, you know, very legitimate questions. Now, how he got his money is quite interesting. Well, he gets a lot of it from these cam businesses where it seems, you know, it seems that he's potentially grooming women. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I can't say this. He hasn't been convicted of it yet. But I mean, that's the, that's the image which is being depicted. So that makes a lot of money. He also has a channel called Hustlers University. That's where he teaches young men how to hustle, both in terms of money and in terms of how to manipulate women. That costs $50 per month and has 100,000 subscribers. So you do the maths. That's $5 million a month, right? So this guy is really, really raking it in. People also pay. A Vice documentary is, is it was out in America last night. It'll be coming out in the UK soon. There are people who pay $5,000 a pop to go to his sort of university where you learn how to get rich and manipulate women, right? So really the money is is pouring in. He's also got a huge following on, on TikTok. Now, that's where the money comes from. The other reason to talk about him is because of how influential he is with young men and also with children, it seems. So there was an article in The Observer recently which sort of described the extent to which this guy is influential in schools. They report this. Michael Conroy, whose company Men at Work trains school staff on talking to boys about these issues, says algorithms make it possible for someone like Tate to be hugely well-known to 14 to 18-year-old boys. Conroy has run sessions in 50 schools on online misogyny. Teachers have raised Tate's influence in every single one. One teacher talked about a lesson on sexual consent in which a boy quoted Tate, saying that if a woman went out alone at night and was attacked, it was her fault. Conroy says teenagers also mentioned Tate as a form of microaggression, towards female teachers. In one session, Conroy discussed the sexist meme, make me a sandwich, used by some men on social media to belittle women. A female teacher said, I've got a lad in year 10 who always writes MMAS at the bottom of my homework, he says. She hadn't known what it meant until then, but he was trying to humiliate her. Ash, I can't imagine being a teenage girl right now and how terrifying that must be if you've got People who are, you know, basically preaching. I mean, he is preaching rape culture, right? He's preaching rape culture to millions of kids. And they're in school thinking women are the property of men. Women have to be cooking and cleaning for men. Also, women want to meet a big, dominant, rich man. And there's no point in trying to be nice because all you need to be is powerful and aggressive. And then if you've got female teachers who are being belittled by, you know, in a misogynist way by their students because they're watching this guy. I mean, it's almost, it feels kind of too big to comprehend. How do you possibly 
challenge something which seems so so malicious and so powerful? Well, I think the first thing you've got to do is understand why he's able to appeal to people, despite being, I think, just hideously obnoxious and conducting himself like a very stupid person's idea of what a smart person is like. And I think that what he does is that he taps into a very real insecurity about loss of status. Now, I think that there are all kinds of ways in which people have experienced a a feeling that society values them less. I think one really obvious way is the position of workers within the labor market. Even if you do everything right, you stay in school and you go to university and take on all that debt and you enter the labor market, it's really difficult to have the kind of standard of living, which means that you can have a house and maybe raise a family and feel valued and secure in the world. And if you're someone who hasn't done super well at school, if you're someone who hasn't gone through university, you're even worse off within the labor market. You know, the kinds of secure blue collar industrial employment, which used to exist, no longer exists. So that is a profound way in which people have experienced a loss of status. I think people feel incredibly atomized and lonely and isolated because we have had a war on social spaces in which people can meet each other and interact and feel part of the community. And instead, what we have to replace it is contact with the world which is mediated online. And and when I think about the way in which we engage with screens, and I compulsively engage with screens as well, it's like empty calories. You know what I mean? It's like trying to live on, you know, round trees, fruit pastels alone. So it's not giving you the real kind of nourishment you need, but but at least it's something. And so I think within that kind of context, someone like Andrew Tate comes in and he works on two levels. One is he goes, yes, you have lost status. Yes, you are being ground into the dirt. Yes, you are being treated like a worm. And it's something which can make people feel seen and it can speak to people's experiences and in some ways operate as a a validation of those experiences. But then what he does is make you feel even worse about yourself by being like, look at my body. I'm so ripped. Look at all these women who want to have sex with me and throw themselves at me. The reason why they want this with me and not with you is because I'm domineering, because I'm a real man, because I have status that comes from violently reinscribing gender roles. And that is an incredibly persuasive narrative is a hideous narrative. It's an ugly narrative. I think it's a violent narrative, but it's one which can be really persuasive. And I think that there is something, and you see this with this like make me a sandwich nonsense, which is something that people say to me online all the time. And I'm like, I'm not going to make you a fucking sandwich. It's not my job. You don't know me. Actually, I don't have any bread in the house. Um, But it's something that people say because it makes them feel like they're being daring and they're being transgressive. Because there are some huge ways in which social norms have changed because women's legal status has changed, because culture has changed about the cultural status and and, and legal rights of women. And people now feel that because the dominant culture is, you know, quite a bit less sexist than it used to be that there is a kind of liberal conspiracy which is silencing men. And so then the transgressive thing to do is say, make me a sandwich to women and be deliberately and egregiously obnoxious. And again, I think that that's something which can feel addictive and alluring to people. And unless I think you you provide something else, you have an explanation for why people feel precarious or isolated or lonely in society. And I think also unless you model ideas of masculinity where women are treated as equals with freedom and agency, where you don't have an entitlement to women's time, but it is possible for people to feel respected and to value one another. People like Andrew Tate are going to be able to, I think, you know, slip into those kind of mental cracks which are opened up by extreme feelings of insecurity. Let's go straight to our next story. Ash Sarkar was back on Question Time this week, and on the subject of the NHS, she gave the Tory minister present a bit of a bollocking. 
The reason why you don't want to admit that it's a crisis is because it makes your government look bad and it's that simple. But if you can't be trusted to describe the problem, why should we trust you to fix the problem? It's, it's wholly subjective. There's a lot that's been said tonight that I, I obviously agree with. You need more staff in the NHS. You need to grow capacity. You need that capacity to keep up with the fact that we've got a growing and an aging population. So there's one thing which I think we really need to talk about, and that is how you keep staff, the staff that you've got. Between 2010 and 2020, the real terms pay of doctors on average fell by around 25%. That is a huge devaluing of doctors' work. Do you think that doctors' work became 25% less useful during that time? No, you just decided to start paying them um, worse comparative to what they'd been paid before and forcing them to work in worse conditions. And when it came to your party's mates in the city, you said, well, in order to get the best talent, we've got to lift the cap of on bankers' bonuses. Right. Pay's got to be competitive. But when it comes to things like the NHS or the education sector, you you're effectively saying to all these public sector workers, get poorer and be happy about it. Now, why should any of them accept that? Now, that was a very well put point. Tell me about question time a bit more generally. You know, what happened? Did he have a single argument to come back at you from that? Well, I hope that you noticed that the point I made was inspired, if not directly <laughs> lifted from something which you said on Tiffy Sour this week. Too kind. Because you were talking about you were talking about the way in which pay is used to retain staff in the private sector, and yet in the public sector, it's seen as greed or unreasonable, and no one makes these arguments. And so I was, I was really pleased to hear you make that point, and it was something which was definitely like ticking away at the back of my brain. Um, so yeah, the long arm of Tisky Sour ended up touching the lofty heights of Question Time. I mean, his arguments were incredibly weak. So after my point about bankers bonuses he first started talking about the wage price spiral which is ridiculous because public sector pay increases are lagging way behind the private sector and also the inflationary crisis that we're in has got nothing to do with wages which have been stagnant and in real terms falling for the past 12 years it's got everything to do with energy prices and then after talking about the wage price spiral and the evils of inflation the inflationary crisis that we're in because conservative governments failed to shift us away from imported gas and insulate homes and get us onto uh, air source heat pumps and renewable sources of energy. After he said all that, he then made these really bizarre points about, well, back in the 1980s, it was the Royal College of Nurses who wanted independent pay review bodies. Now, these independent pay review bodies, as we've discussed before, aren't that independent. The people who comprise these boards are chosen by the government. And also these pay review bodies can only make judgments on pay based on the funding which is allocated by the Treasury for the health service. So if you've got, as we have right now, a totally intransigent treasury, which is saying we're not going to increase money for the NHS in order to increase doctors, nurses, paramedics pay. You're going to have to find that money from within the existing budget if you want to do it at all. The hands of these independent pay review bodies are tied. So I thought it was, it was you know, a fairly weak point. I thought it was kind of pathetic. But he's a government minister. He's a junior minister. He's not the minister for defense. He's the minister for defense procurement. And he can only go along with whatever, you know, pathetic excuses are offered him by Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt and Steve Barclay. So there's a bit of me which almost, I didn't feel sorry for him, but I recognized that the weakness of his position was an indictment of the weakness of the government's position. Let's get another clip of you up. So the discussion about the NHS was followed by a discussion on new laws to limit the right to strike. Do you know why they're trying to make it harder for people to go on strike? Because it's very simple. This government is scared of what happens when workers organise collectively together. They're 
scared that after 12 years of stagnant and falling living standards, of not getting pay rises in the good times, now there's a cost of living crisis, you can't get a pay rise now either, that people are realizing that the only power they have is collective bargaining and when being pushed to it, withdrawing their labor. So that's why they're trying to push through this, frankly, pathetic package of measures to try and restrict people's right to exercise that fundamental democratic right. And if people are out there thinking about organizing their workplaces, this should give them heart, that the government are on the back foot, and it's pathetic, quite frankly. Very well put again. And this lady in the audience agreed. I absolutely support this um, right to strike. I think we should do it. And I'd like to invite Alex, the government, and the Tories to strike immediately because we could absolutely go without your service. <laughs> he had no choice but to really awkwardly laugh <laughs> when she said she wanted the government to go on strike because they're useless to everyone. It was interesting, wasn't it? it, it, it there was no pushback from the audience that actually they want these new laws to limit the right to strike. Everyone seems to think the public sector strikes are legitimate and the Tories are, you know, being completely disingenuous when they say the response to them is to implement a minimum of service law. Well, what's really interesting is that Fiona Bruce was actively inviting the audience to say something supportive of the anti-strike legislation because she'd felt that the complexion of the contributions had been, you know, very much against it. And the closest that anyone came to backing the minimum staffing regulations was a guy who said, okay, yeah, sure, the NHS should have minimum staffing requirements on strike days, but only if the government commits to pay rises which are above inflation, because then it means no one has to go on strike anyway. And so that tells you something about where public mood is at. They are sick to the hind teeth of getting poorer year on year, of watching the value of their pay packets decline even when the economy is growing. And then now when people are really suffering because of increased energy bills, increased food prices, being told that they're going to have to, you know, find room in their non-existent savings or, you know, see their standard of living collapse further. So for me, that was a really um, extraordinary embodiment of the way in which this conservative government has accidentally politicized and radicalized the whole country. Yeah, I, I was thinking that when I watched it. Is it a good idea when you've got to connect the crisis in the NHS to strikes? Because normally, you know, if, if, if you want to politicize the issue of trade unionism, don't do it when the most, you know, high profile people on strike are nurses. Everyone supports nurses. I feel in a way like the, the government are accidentally radicalizing the population in favor of trade unions. Like if I feel like the public support for strikes in general, in the abstract, will will be skyrocketing at the moment because people see them as a response to crises in the in the NHS, which are not just to the benefit of the workers, but are to the benefit of all of us, because this is finally people standing up against chronic underfunding of public services, which is giving us a staffing crisis. So yeah, it seems like a, a massive risk from the Tories. And I suppose it's because they haven't got many good options right now. A final story, a brief one, a silly one. I've been mainly avoiding the Prince Harry drama, but there's one anecdote from his new book, Spare, which has become difficult to avoid. It concerns Harry's penis, which apparently got frostbite on a trip to the Arctic. My penis was oscillating between extremely sensitive and borderline traumatised. The last place I wanted to be was Frostnipistan. I'd been trying some home remedies, including one recommended by a friend. She'd urged me to apply Elizabeth Arden cream. My mum used that on her lips. You want me to put that on my todger? It works, Harry. Trust me. I found a tube, and the minute I opened it, the smell transported me through time. I felt as if my mother was right there in the room. Then I took a smidge and applied it down there. Why? <laughs> Why? Why would you write that down? <laughs> like, I can see you're really desperate for money. You're like, how do I, how do I really like pimp out all of my experiences? Because I'm broke. I, I'm struggling to pay my rent at the end of the month. Fair enough. This dude is, you know, one of, you know, he, he must be in the top 0.1% of rich people in the world, right? And he has decided to put pen to paper this bizarre anecdote, which links his frostbitten penis, his deceased mother, and yeah, cream. Like, what was, why? Interrogators at Guantanamo Bay could not have gotten that information out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm 
so sick of this whole conversation because on the one hand, you've got some really legitimate critiques being made of how the royal family operate and the devil's bargain, which has been made between members of his own family and the nastiest parts of the British media. And I think those are really important things to shine a light on because I think that it gets right to the heart of how our establishment actually functions from the monarchy to the press. But then there is all this other stuff, frostbitten todgers, prime amongst them, where I feel like I'm being tied to a chair in a shipping container, bombarded with information against my will, which I have absolutely no desire to learn. And it makes it really difficult for me to try and, you know, winkle out these pieces of legitimate critique because all I want to do is cover my eyes and block my ears and be like, la, 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 I can't hear you. You can't make me think about your dead mother and your penis. <laughs> I mean, the book was ghostwritten. I mean, obviously, the fact that he is reading it in his own voice on Audible makes it all a little bit more vivid. But I mean, who's, I think you've ghostwritten books, Ash. I mean, whose responsibility is it? Is, it, is he being egged on? to do this or um, no, I mean ultimately ultimately the responsibility lies with the person whose name the book is published under so when I was ghostwriting books there was one person who I ghostwrote a book for who was really across everything that was written there was another person who I ghostwrote a book for I'm absolutely convinced that he didn't even look at it once <laughs> but ultimately it's their responsibility I do think that there's something difficult when you're probing someone in an interview form for some of the most personal or difficult memories that they have. And you've got to think about what your responsibility is when you do that. But ultimately, if the person you're interviewing is telling you that and they look over the book and they sign off on it, you know, it's not the ghostwriter's fault. Blame Prince Harry, blame the shrooms that he took at Courtney Cox's house, blame his therapist, blame the royal family. But, you know, that ghostwriter was, you know, everybody's got to eat. <laughs> and they will be eating because this is, I think, the most quickly selling nonfiction book of all time. Thank you all for watching Tisky Sour. Have a fantastic weekend. And we'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.